Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis might be more fascist than Donald Trump and just a little bit smarter. It's not necessarily, oh, we're going to have a civil war soon, but I'm just saying, if you look at that statistic there, it shows that because the civil war is, is over doesn't mean that animosity just goes away or you automatically were like, yeah, we were wrong. Hey, I'm so sorry. Yeah, we were wrong. This is the Snap Up, where each week Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla help you digest their favorite stories from the world of sports and politics. The, the history books have gotten away with a lot of the bad things that we've done as society because they were non-Christian nations. And just like the dreaded Snap Book, don't be surprised when we start bringing you over to the left side of the fairway. Back in the good old days, you could have gotten a job doing just about anything if you sat there and said, I have a college degree. But now, that's not the case. So we're going to sit there, we're going to back on these kids. We're going to sit there and say, you're going to owe, you know, thousands of dollars of debt. And in many cases, some of them pay for maybe twenty dollars or $30,000 they borrow. They might pay two or $300,000 in their lifetime with all the competitive interest. Now here are your hackers of the week, Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla. Welcome back into the Snap Hook Podcast. Tim Costello, Scott Barzilla coming to you here on a a really uneventful Tuesday evening, Scott. You know, it's it's a it's a pretty dead night in, in the Houston sports world. I was reaching out to her earlier hoping we had a Rockets game, but I was I was wrong. Yeah, I turned it on the Fubo. I was kind of hoping to see some, and nothing was there. I, um, I did want to lead us off because, as everybody knows, uh, there, there's two things that everybody knows. Number one, if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you know that Tim is a foodie. Uh, he he is, you know, a, a food connoisseur, uh, veteran of the restaurant industry, and you also know that Thanksgiving is coming next week. Um, so they asked this question today, Tim. And so I'm going to ask, actually, I'm going to, I'm going to throw in an extra question, but here's the first question. I'm going to give you nine items and you need to remove one item from your Thanksgiving menu. So I'm going to give you turkey and ham. So there's two. I'm going to give you rolls. I'm going to give you macaroni and cheese. I'm going to give you stuffing. I'm going to give you pies, generic pies for now. I'm, I'm not differentiating there. Green bean casserole, gravy, and I'm trying to And uh, Did I mention mac cheese? You did, but you haven't I said did. mashed potatoes. I'm hoping mashed, potato, mashed potatoes okay. is the ninth item. So of those nine items. This is honestly one? a lot easier than you think for me because as, as much no. as I consider myself a foodie, I can throw out three or four of those things because I, I eat can. pie. I can throw out one of those things immediately. I could throw out like four things immediately. It wouldn't even be hard. You can throw out pie. You can throw out green bean casserole. You can throw out stuffing. Um, and then... uh, I like stuffing. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a fan of stuffing. The green bean casserole to me was an easy elimination. Yeah, for sure. Um, my mom like I, I make a lot of those things because other people like them. You know, like I... I understand that Thanksgiving is not just about me, right? It's about having people over and having stuff out. And we do it buffet style. I don't know how your 
how your family does it, you know, but everybody kind of goes through, picks what they want on their plate. I think you'd be surprised how, how bland my plate actually is. I'm, I'm pretty much like turkey, mashed potatoes, mac and cheese, three or four crescent rolls, and a crap ton of gravy. Um, yeah, I, I, I took pies off my list. See, I, I'm actually in like several meetings a day, you know, on Tuesdays. And so I wanted to liven it up. And so one time I eliminated the green bee casserole, but the next time I eliminated pies because usually that in, that's pumpkin pie. And I'm just, I've never been a pumpkin pie fan. And, uh, and of course I can't have too much pie. So, you know, I'd, I'd rather load up on the other stuff. I don't uh, like pie crust. I've never liked pie crust. I don't know what it is. Uh, the only pie I will eat is like a, a, ch- a chicken pot pie, something like that. But uh, my mom actually makes Thanksgiving cake every year. So we, we oh. normally have a yellow cake chocolate icing is what I look forward to for dessert. Okay. Co- so cookie, Cookies too. We normally have like a, a good array of cookies. I mean, you wouldn't believe Thanksgiving at my house growing up. Like you, as much as you consider me a foodie, my dad is... I mean, a professional chef, essentially. And so um, the, the, the guy would wake up at 5 a.m. to start Thanksgiving cooking, man. And he'd start with a breakfast. And then we did ours at like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And so, like, you'd kind of do like a, a breakfast at like 9 or 10 and then roll that into a into a pretty heavy Thanksgiving, uh, you know, late lunch, early dinner. All right. So here was the harder question, I think. Um, you can add one item. To that and to list of nine, but only one. What are you adding? Cake. I'm putting cake if I need a dessert. You had everything I need. I just need some cake. As long as the rolls are crescent rolls. Pillsbury crescent rolls specifically. I, I mean, I'm a sh- uh, the Schuster roll kind of kind of person. I like those. Um, what they're so have you the the the, the Pillsbury crescents are so light. Yeah, so those air, are good. They rolls. soak up the gravy, and then later you slice them real delicately, and you make these little like turkey slider sandwiches for later in the evening when you're watching football at night. It's a I just highly recommend throw, throw a roll in the cart. Throw a roll in the cart this year, Scott, and and you'll thank me. Here's no no. Here's what uh, the one our, our assistant principal you know threw this up there, and this one you know, really caused a big stir. She was eliminating ham. I'm taking or leave it our ham. Um, ham, I, I actually like ham more than I like turkey. Uh, turkey, most of the time, is, is done too dry for me. And so my... I had a uh, dry bird today. My, uh, my go-to 10th item is either steak or chicken. So let me turn this back at you. What's the worst Thanksgiving item you've ever had? Because I have one that comes to mind that we were like, had just moved to Clear Lake. And this is, I'll give you this example so you can kind of maybe go off of this. We had just moved to Clear Lake. Uh, our realtor that sold us to the house had made a big deal about us coming over for dinner there. And they served us turducken. And it is still talked about to this day as one of the most disgusting freaking things we ever had in our entire life. So if I could eliminate turducken from the the Thanksgiving lexicon, I would. No, there's a there's a an, a a serious answer and a kind of a joke answer, and so um, and I know she's probably listening in the background. Janet is a wonderful cook, absolutely wonderful cook. She is n- prouder of nothing other 
than cranberry sauce out of a can. She has to get the ridges, you know, she has to keep the ridges from the side of the can in there. My mom's the same way. My dad makes, my dad makes like a beautiful cranberry sauce for everybody. And then he slices the freaking can stuff for my mom. And and so, you know, and and she'll do this, I think it, because it pisses off her parents. Um, And so she'll, she'll sit there and brag about how great it is. You know, she actually has made a homemade stuff before. So, I mean, it's, um, and, and actually, if you want a good, I would say a good Cajun meal, you know, she can, you know, she put a, a jambalaya that, you know, uh, I put up against just about anybody. Now, the one that, 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 that Ann loves that Janet makes is she makes a really good bolognese sauce. Um, however, uh, I'm talking to an Italian chef who grew up with an Italian chef. So I'm probably, uh, I don't know that uh, her bolognese sh- uh, sauce would knock your socks off, but. Um, I'm always, I, I always love a good meat sauce, man. I always love a good bolognese. Like, I don't care who made it. I feel like if I go to an Italian restaurant for the first time, I'm either going to get meatballs or I'm going to get bolognese because if you can't handle that, you can't handle anything else. So, now the, the, the one, the serious one, and I was talking to Ann about this tonight because, you know, she was eliminating gravy, which I think is a sin. Oh, for sure. Um, can't, can't do that. Well, you know, to me, I like a good cream gravy, I like a good brown gravy. I'm a, I'm not a gravy snob. I'm, I'll go either way. Not but, at Thanksgiving. But, you got to go brown. Brown is the only option at Thanksgiving. No, my my grandmother went with a third option. What's that? The stuff with the giblets in it. Oh, that's the that's brown gravy with giblets. No, 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 no. She didn't make it brown. She she made it, and the giblets were like egg. Um, and so it, it, it yeah, it, it's it's odd. I don't and like so, that option. And so we were we were kind of like as kids, we were just kind of like picking around the little giblets just, you know, to, uh, because the actual gravy part wasn't that bad. I mean, and plus, you know, when you have a dry bird, you know, you need anything you can get to, you know, to, to soak up that, you know, that dryness. But yeah, I'm like sitting there, give me brown gravy, give me cream gravy, give me anything but this giblet stuff. And, and I, I, I find myself very fortunate uh, in my life, I think we only had like one bad Thanksgiving meal, and it was it was that one with the turducken. Um, you know, my dad's a great cook, so like most times that we did at our home, it was you know that was always great. And then when we went to my uh, uncle's house in Oklahoma, there they would pick it up from their country club, uh, and then his wife would actually like pull it out of the oven and act like, okay, here you know, try and fool everybody. Yeah. I didn't, oh. learn, didn't learn until years later, but I mean, it was still good, right? Like there's no issues with it. I've got the story though on that, on that regard. My, my dad told me the story. I know I didn't have actually have this, but he had like a work party for Thanksgiving and, and everybody was a potluck. And so he worked with this woman she and her husband and their family, they ate out 21 meals a week. And so one day, and, and she, and she told the story one day, you know, the husband, tells the kids, you know, I've made dinner. Dinner's ready. And they went and hopped in the car. <laughs> he actually made dinner. So she didn't know what to bring. She has no idea about food. And so at this party, she brought jello sandwiches. <laughs> I, I, and like, I, I didn't taste them. I, I wasn't there. But just listening to that, and I'm sitting here trying to picture that, and I just don't know. How, how your mind goes there. I don't know. It's just crazy to me. Um, 
I can I I've lived like that eating out all the time and just circumstances, you know, put you in that scenario and it's just it sucks, man. Like be eat, being able to cook and just come home and put a nice meal together, there's nothing like it. And it's it's great. But you know, speaking of cooking, Scott, um the city of Houston right now, I would say, is on fire. Uh, when you look at the last week for for the Houston sports nation, you know, at least professionally, because the Cougars football team continues to be a disappointment. But you know, you get the hiring of Joe Espada, you get the Texans continuing to be Bengal slayers. I don't. I, it looked like T.J. Yates out there going down the field in the fourth quarter, but no, it's C.J. Stroud, franchise quarterback. And then you've got a Houston Rockets team that, Scott, I need to eat a crap ton of crow on because, you know, two weeks weeks ago we were both shitting on them on this podcast. And now here I am texting you today, like, I need my fix of Rockets basketball complaining that, you know, we've got five games in, five days in between games going Sunday to Friday. I mean, this reminds me of. I mean, I can't. I, I mean, it reminds me of at least the basketball team wise with, you know, the T Mac and the Harden times where we were good. It was fun to watch, and I watched every game. Football wise, takes me back, you know, to at least, you know, the Shab time period as far as how good this team could be. And, and, you know, with the Astros, we got the guy that we wanted to get. So. Like, this is kind of a pretty celebratory pod- podcast this week. You'd have to go, I think, for me, like, the, the really the the sweet spot would be about 2018, 2019, because, you know, the Texans were good. Yeah. The Astros, obviously, we know about the Astros. And the Rockets still had Harden and were still good. I mean, that was... Yeah, in 2018, they went to the Western Conference Finals. Yeah, and so I'll, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw this question out at, at you. Because uh, this is the one I was thinking of going in. Which of those events? Let's rank those events in the order that you were most geeked up about. Those three that you mentioned. I'm going to put a spot of first because no matter what happens with sports in the city of Houston, baseball and the Astros will always come first with me. And I will publicly say I would trade. Every sports franchise championship in the world to win, and you know, Astros won every. If like, if you told me at the beginning of every year, either the Astros win, the Texans win, or the Rockets win, you decide. I'm picking Astros every time, right? Like, I'm sorry, that's just me. But I love all the teams. It's just the Astros are always come first, so I will pick a spot of first because um, I think it was just the, the right move. I think you know it showed a lot of things. Um, there's a lot of optics that went into the press conference and the way things played out and the, and the interviews that came from it that that kind of settled a lot of doubts that Scott, you and I both expressed about the the mingling or the it uh you know the I don't know what the right ming not mingling but uh you know getting involved from Bagwell from Reggie Jackson from Crane you know those things kind of I felt a little more at ease after that so that's why a spot is number one to me. Um, Texans beating the Bengals is number two just because the point of the season that we're at right now. I think the, the Rockets have also had some statement wins, and, and it's tough to put them in three right now. But with what C.J. Stroud did going down the field in the fourth quarter to get you the win after maybe you know he made a bad play on the uh, 
you know, the drive pr- previous where he had the rollout and got picked off and, and, and really let the Bengals get back in the game when you thought Griffin sealed it with a pick. Um, you know, it showed a lot of cojones and it showed uh, just a lot of poise and the ability to be like, hey, let's just let that throw go. And I still have a chance to go win this game. And it, it lets you feel like you have a quarterback that if you, he's, you, you have one of those guys that you say, don't leave him too much time. Ooh, left him too much time. And there's not a lot of guys in the NFL that when you score with 46 seconds left that people go, mm, left him too much time. But it's looking like Stroud could be one of those guys, and that means that you contend for Super Bowls at the end of the day. When you have one of those guys who can go grab a win from the jaws of defeat, that gives you a chance to go win championships, and that's exciting. And then sadly, I do have to put the Rockets third just because it's early in the season. But it is exciting to see the way they're gelling, the type of basketball that they're playing. It's exciting to see Sengun just become the focal point of the offense, which is what I think the city of Houston, at least Rockets Twitter, has been dying for. And, and it's what I think got um, Coach Silas fired is, is his inability to, to use his players correctly. If you want to look at a, a Dusty Baker analogy, you, you, you had the best talent possible sitting on the bench and you were running out Christian Wood and you were running out Daniel Thies and you're running out um, just straight garbage minutes over a guy who could be a, a future all-star, all-NBA type center in this league, who went toe-to-toe with the defending champion and MVP and, and, and Jokic and, and went shot for shot with the guy. No one could They couldn't stop each other, and that was exciting too. So, Scott, that's my three. I know it was long-winded. Um but we'll send it back onto your side there after that. No, I'm, I'm good with that. Um, I would switch uh, numbers one and two personally. Uh, and the only reason I would is because I'm with you in terms of like, you know, my ranking of Houston sports, but I expected a spot to be hired. And so I was not expecting the Texans to beat the Bengals. And, and I think what I liked about that victory the most is, is that, you know, there are two things that it comes down to. Number one, if you look at the last five weeks, they've all ended pretty much the same way. The Texans are barely ahead in the fourth quarter. The defense has to come back on the field. They have to make a stop. Most of the time, they haven't been able to. Uh, the last two weeks... You know, we let them get back into the game. We let them tie. You know, Stroud obviously had a big you know thing to do with that. I think Bobby Slowick also had some uh, has some answering to do. I think on those two third down plays. But two weeks in a row, Stroud has pulled your butt out of the fire, and that you know it. This is you know this is goes beyond a Houston thing because we think of it as you know these losses, you know, particularly to the Falcons and to the Panthers are, you know, just Texans. They felt like Texans style losses where you're just like, yeah, that's a Texans loss. Well, these last few games have been maybe our Texans wins. And I don't know if you watched Monday night's game, but um, Buffalo finds creative ways to lose uh, football games. This time they win the game. They missed the field goal. Denver misses the field goal at the end, but they got 12 men on the field. Oh, we're going to re-kick. Denver wins. And, it's like, and, and so what does you know, Buffalo do? Oh, let's fire our offensive coordinator. 
Well, your offense corner doesn't have anything to do with the fact that you had 12 men on the field. But I, I digress. Um, Espada, you know, we'll get into that, I think, more in detail, because I think both of us watched the press conference. And so I think, you know, we both probably come out with, you know, some more questions than answers, you know, from those yeah, that kind of event. Um, I'm with you on the Rockets. It's early, but I was not expecting them to beat Denver. I, I was just assuming, okay, that, that winning streak's over at five games. I think I you know, texted that to you, and it was like, okay, it's going to be over, but and then they come back and win. I don't know if this is this tournament, because I, I, I can't really get into this whole tournament concept. I don't like it. I don't I – don't, the court is freaking stupid. I like the special uniform. I always like a special jersey, but – but I mean, Scott, I was, I mean, you look at our text from Friday or Sunday, whatever it was, when we played Denver, yeah. it's just like, I was into that game. I'm, I'm, I mean, I, I can't remember just sitting there and enjoying watching Rockets basketball for the last time like that. Yeah. And I, I was, unfortunately, I was at church again. So, you know, it's kind of doing our thing. We were doing our own kind of special Thanksgiving dinner there with the kids, which replacing turkey with chicken. So I was, you know, in favor of that, but um, we did bring up the press conference with Joe Espada and what I found interesting, and I found this as a utter failure on the part of the English speaking press, the Spanish speaking reporter comes out and asks the question in English, which is just torture, you know, for, for the, uh, for those of us who are not speaking Spanish, but asking him how would he manage the team differently than Dusty Baker? And that's the question I think all of us really want to know and nobody on the english side asked it and so we get the question in english but the of course the answer comes in spanish and so i can only assume that he answered it pretty much the same way he answered everything else um i didn't see any shade really being thrown um i mean he did make a comment about putting the best team on the field but i didn't see that in the context that it was answered as a, as a shot at, at Dusty Baker. And he was very, very complimentary of Dusty. So, I mean, I think that uh, Dana Brown mentioned humility and I, I definitely got that, you know, from, uh, you know, from the press conference. And, you know, and I, I think that if you look at his record, he's been a very detail oriented guy. I mean, you look, he's been pretty much in charge of the infield defense since he's come to Houston. And so you can look at the development of guys like uh, Carlos Correa defensively, uh, Jeremy Pena defensively. I mean, you can know, uh, Alex Bregman's, you know, certainly I think a better than average third baseman uh, defensively. And, and Mauricio Dubon, you know, pulls in a gold glove. I'm not sure how much he deserves that gold glove, but he, he won it this year. So I think it's deserved for the utility position. Yeah, I mean that's I guess so, and that's and and but I, I'll tell you what he was much better defensively in the infield than he was in the outfield. I and, agree, uh, but he played a service. I mean, he didn't. You didn't lose anything by putting no, Dubon no. in center field, right? You made not you made him gained, but not uh, defensively. I, yeah, yeah. But that and, isn't that and isn't that the point of a utility man? You can put him anywhere you need, and you don't, and he doesn't affect. You know, he he can he can play anywhere, and that's yeah that's what the award goes to. So if, if he is responsible for that infield defense, I have to say that, you know, so far, you know, I like, you know, in addition to the fact that he's been here and it's, it's, it's kind of a sense of continuity. And I think that's what you really wanted. I will be interested to look at his staff 
Um, it, it, the based on the answers that I heard, it sounds like there's going to be at least some new staff members. Um, I think they already made one major decision. If uh, and I can't remember, Pettis they, is coming back. He yeah. talked Pettis into coming back instead of going to Ron Washington's. Um, yeah. Staff. Okay. So so Pettis is going to be what first base or third base? Third. He's good old windmill. Um, windmill Kim. No, windmill, uh, windmill Pettis, baby. Uh, he gets him going. So um, I would love to see the bench coach. Who's the bench coach is going to be? I want to see hitting coach, pitching coach. That's, those are going to be some interesting decisions. Um, obviously, I, I think I've seen uh, MLB trade rumors has mentioned that you know a few teams are in on Martin Maldonado, so maybe he continues playing. Um, you know, my, I take I take him as a backup. I take I, him as like Verlander's personal catcher. I, I, I don't know about that in a Tony Eusebio type role. I I don't know about that because the problem I have is that there, I, I see a kind of a sliding of well. Fromber really liked him, so let's have him be JV and Frombers, and then he's catching forty percent of the games, and it's like, oh crap. Um, I, I was talking to my father tonight, and he mentioned a good idea, and I don't know if Michael Brantley is continuing is going to continue to play. Well, I'd love him as the hitting coach. That's what he said, hitting coach. Um, of course, you know, I don't know if he's going to continue to play or not. That's kind of up to him. Um, I don't think it'll be here. Um, no, I, I think so, he's done in Houston. So I don't know. So what did you have any uh, kind of lasting thoughts from the, the press conference? I, I thought the fact that it was Dana and Joe up there together by themselves was a huge thing to me. Um, you know, it just really, to me, seems like there's going to be a lot more unity between the GM and management than there has been in the past. You know, when you look at, you know, 2015 through 2019, you know, Lunau and Hinch were, were pretty well connected, right? Like the numbers were passed on and Hinch used that data and, and, and did some pretty great things with it. When, when Click and Dusty were there, you just feel like they didn't ever really mesh. And, you know, Dusty and, and, and Dana just weren't really together very long, right? You didn't really – and you could see Dusty – Dusty's going to do what Dusty does. Um, so I am excited to hopefully see a, a front office that is, is at least on an analytical side able to work together with the manager. Um, and I do think Espada will be better with that data than Dusty was. And I, and I don't mean to throw a ton of Dusty shade because we do that a lot because I do think – for Joe, um, being on the on the bench with Dusty for the last three years and with Hinch before that, he now has seen how to manage a locker room, right? Like that's a big part of it too. That we could all talk about, you know, what happens on during the nine innings, but there's a whole other side to this thing that Dusty is excellent at. You know, we can get as frustrated as we want as Dusty for the lineups that he puts out there, but Dusty creates a phenomenal clubhouse. You don't ever have anyone say anything negative about how Dusty Baker handles a clubhouse. So I do think that aspect of it, I'm really excited that Joe Espada um, did have that opportunity because honestly, Scott, I wanted him when we hired Dusty. And I think because of the situation, you couldn't go to Espada at that point. I think you had to bring somebody else in to kind of let it cool off. And I'm excited that it went the way that it did. I agree with you. I think the word that you were looking uh, for earlier was meddling. 
Meddling. That's what it was. Mingling is what I kept saying. I wanted <laughs> meddling. I mean, I'm okay with a Jeff Bagwell mingling. You know, um, I'm okay with that. Uh, he, he can do what he wants. He's a Hall of Famer. He can do what he wants to. But um, no, the, uh, I, I'm with you. Uh, the fact that it was, it seemed like it was Dana Brown's hire. And, and I think, well, the thing is, is that this is a two-way street. And I think that's the biggest frustration. And, and, and you kind of felt like Dusty was a caretaker, even though he lasted four seasons. You had this feeling that he was, you know, he, he obviously wasn't long for the job. Everybody was kind of a year-to-year kind of deal. And what I'm hoping is, is that you'll see this go both ways. Because to me, Dusty loves to use his bench. Uh, if you look at, you know, the way that he managed, I would have gotten him some of the most kick-ass bench players around so that you, we wouldn't be feeling like shit on YMCA Sunday. Like, you know, he liked to do, you know, where he empties his bench and plays everybody. Well, you know, it'll take a while to figure out what Espada is and who he is as a manager. But what my hope is, is that it's not just Espada getting input into, oh, hey, what kind of players you want? But it's also Brown saying, let me look and see how you manage and let me find you the players that fit your managerial style best. No, I think that's a fantastic point. Uh, and I think that's probably, pardon me, I think that's probably part of those conversations that they had in in the meetings, right? And I'd like to know, I, I really would like to see who all was interviewed. Um, you know, did anybody get a second interview? Or were the Astros really just doing due, due diligence and, at the end of the day, a spot of really wowed him, and that's what I uh, am excited for. I think as Astros fans, we wanted some continuity, but I think in the back of our minds, we always knew, man, Dusty makes some interesting in-game decisions, right? Like I, I, I feel like in, in Hinch's time period, there's really only one game, or one or two games I can think of where I'm like, man, I wouldn't have done that. But like Hinch didn't do the YMCA Sundays. He did. He, he's pretty good with his bullpen he, management. I feel like for the most part, other than Game Seven of the World Series in 2019. But at the end of the day, Dusty, we there were many games where we're like, "What is this?" Or I'd text you and say, "Do you see Dusty's lineup today?" Or so I think for Astros fans, I think they're hoping Espada can number one extend this window. Number two, maybe pick up some of those wins this year that were available for the taking and and or take up some of those losses that could have been wins and and next year we're 95 to 100 win team again instead of you know 91 92 wins yeah i think uh i think the my biggest takeaway from uh, because i've never really seen him extensively interviewed before and so my biggest takeaway is that he seems like a good dude and you know, the biggest thing I can say about Dusty Baker is Dusty Baker's a good dude. Um, one of the things that was always most impressive, and I remember this early on, and I don't know if you remember, I think it was either 2020 or uh, 2021. No, because he was hurt in 2020. Uh, I remember Jordan having to uh, get pulled from a couple of games for not running out, uh, running out ground balls. And I remember Dusty playing it off as if Jordan was hurt. And so basically that was him taking the bullet, you know, for Jordan. 
where most managers, I think particularly like, like a, a crusty old, like Tony LaRusa or somebody like that would have been like, yeah, we're teaching the kid a lesson. And that would have, you know, created like this whole other thing. And, you know, we'd spend like a week or two talking about that thing. And Dusty just had a way of saying, oh, I think he, you know, tweaked something. So we're just going to kind of keep an eye on it. And then, you know, a couple of days later, he's back in the lineup and nobody's saying anything. Espada seems like a good dude because, and, and you know, he's really mentions his faith, which, you know, people, and I understand some people take or leave and that's fine. But he seems like, you know, he seems like he's going to be a humble dude. And and the worst thing to me you could get in here is like a Buck Showalter who's going to sit there, beat his chest and start yelling and screaming. And you're like, oh, shit, you know, what are we doing? You know, so, you know, to me, a good laid back dude who sounds like a, you know, a baseball lifer, smart, mentioned that he's going to, you know, use his instincts in addition to the analytics. So, I mean, he's not just going to be, you know, computer managing, you know, there's nothing at this point, you know, obviously we're going to get into the season. Maybe he does some things that we question, but at this point I can't see anything that, you know, as a future problem here. Yeah, it was a, I think it was a great press conference. It was a win. Um, seems like he's got a wonderful family. The guy thanked his wife about three or four different times for, you know, her support and helping him get to where he gets now in life. And, um, you know, one of the things he mentioned too, is like, he said he's a good dude. And he mentioned this is a clubhouse full of, you know, good people, you good parents, good, you know, good citizens of the city, good husbands, good fathers, things like that. So, um, you know, it's, it's nice to build that environment, right. Where people just enjoy going to work because it's a group, a, a group of good guys. And I think that's, what's made this thing last as long as it has. Uh, and, and now it's up to Jim Crane to, you know, he's got to open the pocketbook up a little bit here, Scott, and we've got to see, um, you know, we've got to see some money spent hopefully in the right places or some trades being made, but I think we've got a pretty, uh, interesting off season ahead of us here. Yeah. So, uh, I think for right now, we're probably in a holding pattern on that, you know, in terms of yeah. the, the Astros. I mean, really, things don't really pick up until December. Um, I mean, you're going to have the winter meetings, which, you know, to me is like the, is, you know, baseball nirvana. I've always wanted to go to the winter it's meetings. It's in Arlington this year. Yeah, I've always wanted to go and just kind of stay there and just kind of, you know, just kind of watch, you know, you know, be a fly on the wall, so to speak. But, um, I was supposed to go one year. Uh, I think it was the COVID year, actually. I was supposed to go because I was looking at maybe trying to get like a different minor league gig. Uh, and while the major league winter meeting stuff happens, the minor league ones happen as well. And so you can show up as a broadcaster and you know introduce yourself to teams. Uh, Ira Liebman, that my, my mentor, got on as like the media director for Team Australia, the World Baseball Classic one year, uh, from going to the winter meetings and meeting people and stuff like that. So um, if you're able to get in there and, and pull your strings and – and do what you need to do. It could be a game changer for you. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I'm I'm probably past that point, you know, in, in my career slash life. But you could be uh, like the media director for a random like. What if like Team Italy needed a media director for the next World Baseball Classic? You know, yeah, I think that'd be true. like a fun little like two month venture for you. That's true. Yeah, I'm. Um, but so moving on to, I think you know, just this game and and I, and. 
I don't know if you saw the news today with Denzel Perryman. Um, I think what I find crazy, and, and this is where I, I hate to sit there and, and praise the NBA because you know the NBA does a lot of things wrong, but the NBA has a way of tracking technical fouls. And they have a point system with their technical fouls. And when you get up to a certain point total, you're suspended for a game. And, and, and that's, how they do, that's how they handle it. To me, why can't you do a point system with these penalties, particularly like unnecessary roughness? To me, I don't understand where you're just like, la-di-da, 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 three games. And you're just like, wait, 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 what, what? You know, they could have suspended him for a game two or three weeks ago. Now, you know, we I've seen some of the Perryman hits, and some of them you know, are cases where guys are kind of suddenly going to the ground, and it's hard for the defender to kind of change positions, kind of, you know, mid-tackle. But then some of them, you're looking at it, and you're like, yeah, that, that doesn't look good. So, I mean, I, I get, you know, the need for discipline. I, need, I get the need for player safety, and I get the need for, you know, to drive a point home. But it seems like going from zero to three games, it just, I mean. It seemed excessive. It was, and it wasn't a great hit, but, like, this is a fast-paced game they play, Scott. You know, and, and there were two helmet-to-helmet hits that didn't even get called, uh, one on Tank Dell and one on C.J. Stroud. Uh, on what got ruled like a fumble, and it actually should have been an incomplete pass and a helmet-to-helmet hit. Yeah. And so, you know, if you want to sit there and say that he's doing this, then then you have to say that these guys are doing that too. And I don't mean to be, well, what about me? I'm just saying that this is a fast-paced game, and you can't hold a hit from four years ago against somebody now when you're making a ruling on something that happened this season. It's got to reset every year. And if you want to ding him a game, it sucks but I get it. And you make your point. Okay. And this, you know, end of story, we move on, but three games, that's, it's excessive. It really is excessive. And there's, I'd like, you know, when you, what, what did Ray Rice get for, for his thing? Four games. Well, I'm just saying beating your wife is worth four games before public outrage, but helmet to helmet contact is worth three. Like there's the NFL has no, there's it is no rhyme or reason to suspension. It is how good is Roger did it, did Goodell's day going at the time that he reads your your thing, and then he decides how many games you're going to get. If Roger Goodell's wife put out that that morning, probably only getting a day. If Roger Goodell's wife has been telling him no for the last week and a half, that's a six game suspension. I'm sorry. Well, he has two guys that, um, and I think Derek Brooks is one of them, and I can't remember the guy. The other guy is a former receiver. I think they're going to team together, and they're going to do the. They did the initial suspension, and then of course you, you're going to get an appeal. Uh, Kareem Jackson got a four game suspension earlier this year, and it got commuted down to one game uh, on appeal. So I have a feeling, you know, Perryman's going to appeal, and I have a feeling that it'll get, you know, it'll get commuted down to one or two games. But here's my point: if you want to, if you want to root this out, you set it up like the NBA did with their technical fouls. You see, you have a point system, and what is, and, and to your point, what happens when the league end, uh, when the season ends for the NBA? You go back to zero. 
and then you start over the next year. And we remember guys like Ron Artest. Could you imagine? I was just saying, could you imagine if you held Rasheed Wallace accountable for technicals that happened three years earlier? The guy oh, would not be, to- be able to play. He's suspended all year. Ron Artest has been suspended for 65 games due to 800 technical fouls. Um, yeah, it, it's it's and so and I get it, you know. And you mentioned the 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 uh, the CJ Stroud. I'm going to put air quotes around it. Fumble which was absolutely ridiculous, and they showed it on replay, and, and they still couldn't get it right. And so to me, you're going to suspend somebody based on a call that you may or may not get right. Now, did his helmet hit the other guy's helmet? Yes. You can't deny that. But what you cannot know is what was his intent. Was his intent to injure or was he, you know, going, you know, thinking the guy here, the guy's going to be here, then all of a sudden he's down here, and oh crap! So I mean, that's. Um, I think on this one though, he did lower the, <coughs> he lowered the crown of his helmet. Yeah, he did. He did, and 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 he's done that before. But you know uh, what? That's a that's a one game right there. Pop him right there. But that's it's. It can't be three. You but, can't have, like you say, Cream Jackson four down to one. This this is probably going to you say get reduced down to one. They just like to make headlines with these long, ridiculous suspensions, knowing that they're never going to actually serve them that way, and so then they cancel it out. But it's it's there's well, no rhyme or reason. The NFL, well, like it kills the NBA, me. as you said, the NBA has points, and when you get X amount of technicals, you're suspended for this long. There needs to be some sort of accountability in the NFL because there just isn't any. It is well, literally Roger Goodell is he's he's you know uh, he's a South American dictator right now like he's Pinochet. There's no one holding him accountable. Well, what kills me is that you could I mean you could backtrack this thing. Like I think he made a uh, Perryman made a hit in the Indianapolis game way back in week two, which was a similar hit. Okay, like but why didn't we do anything after that game? They they find them, I'm sure, and 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 you mentioned some hits that you know some of the uh, some of the Bengals players had. The league goes back and looks at these things, and so even if the officials don't flag them on Sunday, a lot of times these players get fined. I don't care about the but, fine. If if but, he gets flagged for helmet to helmet, we don't turn the ball over there, and we and we don't have a fumble. Yeah, well that's true, and and but the but the part of it is is that there's no. There's no transparency in how you come to – how did you get to three games? It's a whim. He literally – I, I want to know if he has a fucking wheel in his office and it's up, uh, your suspension. He, he gets you on FaceTime <laughs> and he just spins the wheel and it just stops uh-huh, well, three games. But we've talked about this with officials. I mean, what do you do with officials who egregiously – miss call after call after call like and, and they'll sit there and show this like I, I think there was like a twitter account that showed this kid who you know gets rung up on a, on a pitch that's like at least 18 inches outside and he's sitting there drawing the line the umpire you know throws him out and the kid breaks his bat and it's like but what happens to that umpire we don't know and in, in, in the major leagues, what happens whenever Angel Hernandez makes yet another horrible call and then tosses somebody because they're yelling at him for making yet another horrible call? You know what? We don't know what happens to them. There's no transparency. 
And to me, you know, the thing about sports, and I'll say this, you know, until I'm blue in the face, is that we don't know what's going to happen. When we turn on a game, we don't know what the outcome is going to be. That's what makes sports different than anything else you could possibly watch. You know, if you throw me into a Spider-Man movie, I think I think I know Spider-Man's going to win in the end. I mean, I think I can figure that out. Um, if I'm watching a wrestling match, I think I can pretty much pinpoint, okay, I think this guy is going to win because the script says so. But you stick, you know, a New England Patriots team that's undefeated in the Super Bowl against a kind of mediocre Giants team and... Well, you never know, right? And, and so that's what makes sports great. And so the problem is, is that I need to know as a fan that everything's on the up and up. I need to know that, you know, the officials, while they're going to make mistakes, are trying the best they can. And I need to know, as the point that we were making about the umpires in the ALCS, that the best guys or girls are in there umping that game. That we're not throwing out the 75th best umpire into an ALCS game. That we're not throwing out the, the 81st best umpire to call a game. We're not going to sit there and have a playoff game in the NFL with the 16th best referee. That's stupid. You know, we want to we know the best officials are out there. We want to know that, you know, all the rules are being enforced. You know, we want to know everything's on the up and up. And right now, that's this is just another case of where that's not, we can't say that. Yeah, and that's and that's what's frustrating. It was there's no transparency, as you said, and we just as fans want to know what what equates to what, and and it's not just football; it's baseball too. You know, I think that that's another thing that the NBA does best is sometimes it's frustrating when they put out that last five minute report and you see that the call that you thought was missed is on there and hey this is bullshit but you know what at least they do hop on there and they say hey here's the here's the calls we missed it we'll get better and so um every everybody out there says you know the refs are disciplined or whatever but it's very rare for the nfl to come out and say hey we missed this call and the mlb will never come out and say hey this call was missed ever even when there's a twitter report showing all the freaking calls that were missed throughout the game. It runs both ways, though, because I remember there was a game as a, as a kid. Uh, the Oilers were playing the Washington Redskins. This is, you know, how far back we go, like we're Redskins. And they won by, the, the, the Oilers won the game by like two touchdowns. But they lost by 10 points because there were just four or five calls that were just absolutely horrible. That, you know, canceled touchdowns, that, you know, know, had turnovers go the other way. The NFL sent a public letter of apology to to Houston. What does that do? We still lost. Games, you know, and, and, and so I can see that perspective where it's like, don't tell me you got it wrong and apologize for it. Fix it and make it right if you can if you can't, then at least I need to know that, you know, don't apologize to me for, oh, it sucks to be you, but sit there and say, you know, we're continually striving to do better and we're going to, you know, do this. Uh, tell me right. this, this crew is done for the year. Or, this crew was so egregious, they are done. 
Or, you know, if you're the NFL and you're a multi, multi, multi billion dollar business, why do we have insurance agents and lawyers as officials? Why aren't they full time employees who, you know, are, you know, maybe working out, you know, to stay physically fit, maybe studying game tape, you know, maybe going to, you know, to refereeing clinics. You know, why do we have a guy selling, you know, Bob an insurance policy on a Friday, hopping on a plane Friday night or Saturday morning to go to a game on Sunday, you know, calling the game and then going straight back Monday to sell insurance to Fred over here? I mean, what the hell is that? Because they want, those people don't want to give up their job. Those refs don't want to stop being refs. They want to make a hundred something grand a year and still go be able to sell insurance and do their thing. The NFL would have to come in and say, hey, we're going to pay every one of these guys 250 grand a year or whatever it is to be full-time employees. I mean, look how much Major League Baseball umpires make for working uh, half a season. Well, and I'll tell you, my, uh, my dad, before he got hurt, not, uh, I don't know if I've told you this story. Um, he refereed, well, he was in Southwest conference, uh, for both men and women. Uh, and he did a lot of summer league games back in the eighties. And so I saw Akeem play as a, you know, summer league. I saw Moses Malone. Um, I saw a lot of all those five slamma jamma guys. Like the one I remember watching Michael Young drop about 30 on a team wearing cargo shorts. You know, I mean, just, you know, what in the hell? I mean, he's just like, looks like a guy like, you know, walking into the Y. Yeah, I can play a little. And then, you know, just like, what the hell? But um, he was his. It's like the classic white man can't jump, right? Where he's yeah. out there like looking as goofy as he possibly can. And then like, just, oh, it's uh, so pretty. It's so pretty. So there, the, he was refereeing a game, um, Wharton Junior College. And Wharton Junior College, I can't remember who they were playing, but they had a guy on their team, and, you know, you might have heard of him. His name was Larry Johnson. And so Larry Johnson is on a full-out break. And so my dad's underneath the basket because the guy's going to, you know, going to try and dunk it. And the kid on the other team, I can't remember if it was Wharton or uh, whichever one who Johnson wasn't on, thought, I'm going to draw a charge on Johnson. And he sees 6'7", 250 coming his way. And at the last minute, he's like, nope. So he gets out of the, le- out of the way, and Johnson plows into my dad. He planted his leg. He ripped every ligament in his knee. Finished roughing the game. So basically, his partner had to bust tail because this is back in the days of two-man crews. And so, you know, dad couldn't run. So he just stayed at half court and played, you know, was the full-time, you know, high ref for the whole rest of the game. And then he, uh, he, so he couldn't officiate anymore after that. But, you know, there were always overtures of possibly getting into the NBA as a referee. And, you know, he, but he would have had to have given up his job. And he was, you know, working as an administrator, school administrator back at that point. And of course, I'd be giving up like his retirement and all that good stuff. But the point is, is that you're going to be refing full time. You're going to be working on your craft full time. You're not, you know, driving out on a Tuesday night, coming back on a Wednesday, back to your day job. And I think that's where the NFL needs to be. The NFL needs to be where 
I'm sorry, guys, you're going to have to pick. Uh, you're going to have to pick either, you know, doing this full time and we'll pay you a salary commensurate to that. Or you're going to have to go back and be an insurance agent. I couldn't agree more. I, I couldn't agree more with you, Scott. I think it's it's time for that. And it's there's no excuse other than the stubbornness of um, both parties, really, to not have that. I think the NFL is being cheap, especially as much money as they're making. And I, I think the other side uh, is probably, you know, kind of wanting to double dip a little bit. And you can't have that if you want to be at your best. You have to focus on your craft 100% of the time. You're absolutely right. I'd like to see some sort of relegate. Like, it, it just drives me crazy how protected these guys are. You know, I, I'd love to see a world where, you know, mid-season at the All-Star break, the worst umps are set down and the best AAA umps get called up. You know, you can you, – and not just a quick injury replacement. Like, nah, mid-season, we're making sure that down the stretch of the playoffs, we've got guys that are – going to make sure that these important games are called well it shouldn't be that hard but it seems it seems that it is but before we run out of time let's kind of talk a little bit more rocket scott because i think um you know it's it's been two games since we last hopped on here the go the denver game was was fantastic loved every minute of it but the pelicans game the one before that was one that you know you, you and i were talking during that game, text back and forth. This is one last year that the Rockets lose by 20. You know, a, a game that they were winning at halftime. They couldn't get stuff to fall in the third quarter. And if, if you don't have a guy like Fred Van Vliet there to right the ship and get guys good looks and get Sangoon the ball and let him create, you would have had Kevin Porter Jr. dribbling and jacking up threes and Jalen Green jacking up threes, and they would have lost this game. But this new-look Rockets team um, – it's just gritty. Dylan Brooks' defense at the end of that game was fantastic. Sengun's defense at the end of that game playing on a bum ankle was unbelievable. The effort level was unbelievable. That's winning basketball. I think what impressed me the most about that game, I, I think it was Dylan Brooks because Dylan Brooks got in early foul trouble, and so he was really out of commission for you know virtually the entire third period. Uh, on the bench with those fouls because I, I think they kept them out. They got the fourth foul pretty quick and they kept them out, you know, until almost midway through the fourth quarter. And then they brought him back in the game and you could see the energy level of the team change immediately. Uh, Fred Van Vliet, two cold-blooded threes right there at the end of that game. And that was for a guy that wasn't really shooting it all that well that game. But, you know, he made the shots when you needed to. I think what's impressed me the most, I think, is that is that they have had a dramatic impact on Jalen Green. You can flat out see it. And I was uh, before we came on, um, I actually had it on Space City, um, uh, Space City Network, and they were doing the Rockets show like thirty minutes. And of course, most of it's like, hey, they have an NBA store at the uh, Galleria. Okay, cool. But when they interviewed Jalen Green, asked him what his goals were. He said winning. That's not something he would have said the last two years. He would have said something stupid. Um, but he said all the right things. Now, is he being coached into saying all the right things? Possibly. But it means that he's learning. 
if he's able to parrot it back and, and have it be believable. Or it means that, you know, maybe somebody like Fred Van Vliet has gotten into his ear and said, listen, you know, this is the way the league works. This is the way you're going to stick around in this league. And he is playing immeasurably better basketball uh, than what he has the previous two years. Uh, the shooting is better. Decision-making is better. Um, he's just as explosive as he always was. But, but he's know, doing it smarter. He's, too, in right? he's, not, he's in control. He's not just going to try and go take on three guys and, and blow up at the rim. No, like he's getting him – and, him and Sengun have a nice little pick-and-roll game going, as do him and – you know, Fred Van Vliet and Sangoon's pick and roll game is un freaking believable. But the little pocket passes, he's running baseline well, which is which is a great sign too. I feel like those backdoor cuts when Van when Fred Van Fleet's coming down and, and he knows he can use explosive to get there. But also he's just knowing when he has a little crease, right? Like he's starting to have that basketball IQ where he's like, Hey, I can beat this guy around the edge and there's no one at the basket, let's go. And that's when that's when you explode to the hoop. And I just the basketball IQ is off the brooks. And and I just want to – let's talk a little bit more about Ime too because Udoka's rotations, you don't feel like he's forcing anybody out there. If you don't have it that night, hey, okay. If the matchup isn't there, hey, okay. You know, Jabari Smith's only playing like 20 minutes in eight, twenty minutes a game right now because you've got guys like Tari Eason and Jeff Green who down the stretch give you better looks or better free throw shooters or better defenders in clutch time. Okay, let's go win a basketball game. And that's how you blend this young roster and teach them how to win. Have guys like Jeff Green who can play the four for 25 minutes a game, who can be at the at the four position come, you know, five, mi- five minutes left in the game and you're up or down two. You need a guy like that in there. Because right now, Jabari Smith isn't performing at that level. Is he growing? Yes. Can he grow into that? Yes. But having Jeff Green there to help close a game down because we need to win is huge. Well, you mentioned things about um, Silas, you know, earlier in the show, and I think the big thing was is that I think those rotations were being dictated, and and I think that was really, and and it was really the most unfortunate thing about Stephen Silas is that the fact that I don't think he was able to coach the basketball team the way he wanted to coach them. I think he was told, you're going to play this guy, you're going to play this guy, you're going to play this guy. And so, you know, they had decided fairly early on that they weren't going to play, you know, Sangoon as much. And and who knows why? Goodness knows why. Um, but I think Doku's got the skins on the wall, you know, through his experience in Boston, sit there and say, you know, to Raphael Stone, sit down, shut up, I'll go over there and general manage, I'll coach this team. Um, and I think, you know, really Jabari Smith, I I've always been impressed with his maturity, I think at least, um, maybe not maturity as a player, but maturity off the court. I think he's a guy that gets it. And so I think he's a guy that's going to look and sit there and, and probably be able to internalize, okay, why is Jeff Green getting more minutes down the stretch than I am? It's because he's doing X, Y, and Z. I need to go do X, Y, and Z if I want to get more minutes down the stretch. And I think, you know, he'll eventually grow into that. And I think Adoku is the kind of coach, you know, you're listening to him speak. You and I were both kind of going back and forth talking about how just smart he is when you listen to him on a press conference. Just he, he's a he's a, a smart basketball guy. And so he's going to be smart enough to communicate 
and, and sit there and say, this is why you're not playing. You need to do this. If you do this for us, you're going to play more. And I think he could probably do that with just about everybody on the roster. And, of course, you know, the key moment of that game, I don't know if you remember this, the ball gets stuck there on top of the backboard. Who was it that got it down? Boban. <laughs> he was the only one. With that ease. Could everybody else was struggling. He just like a little baby hop yeah. with the broom. Yep. Everybody has a role, Tim. Everybody has a role. Hey, everybody has something in their pantry that's tough to reach, and that's when Boban Monjanovic comes in, gets it down for you, and now you can have those Pringles, Scott, that you can't remember how you even got them up there. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But it is an exciting time. I think you're right that the the, the lineups were being dictated last year, and it's, it's sad for Silas because he never got to coach the team he came here to coach. But you know what? Who cares anymore? I, I'm tired of that excuse for that guy. Um, you know, I, I don't think Stone's butts off the hot seat yet because I, I think when you look at guys like Jabari Smith, um, no, you know, if you see like a Chet Holmgren turn into something really, really good, knowing that that could have been who you had, it sucks. But it is what it is. This team right now is fun. They're exciting. They're a contender as it looks early in the season, and I don't think they're going to be this hot all year long, but if you can rip off, we're already at six. If you could turn this into a seven, eight, nine game win streak, it gives you a little breathing room as the season goes on, Scott, to, you know, play 500 basketball for a little bit and still be in playoff contention. Yeah. I don't know that we know what the ceiling is going to be for this team. Uh, you and I both kind of mentioned, you know, finishing around 500 um, as, as kind of a goal, you know, maybe a few games above. I think it, if you told me right now that we went, 45 and 37 I'd, I'd be I'd take that all day oh yeah and, I, you know, and you mentioned like sliding into the ninth and tenth spot or you know I think, I think at this point we should be looking for like six or seven right yeah so you know if you told us we're in a play-in series I'd be good with that because I think you know this team needs to play meaningful basketball games and it's the same thing with the Texans they need to play meaningful football games if they lose them, it's okay because it's a learning experience. And I and I the one thing that I can say about Stroud is he's a fast learner. He's not going to throw that pass again like he did this past Sunday. Um, and I think it's going to be the same thing with with these Rockets. I think you know you you've got enough veteran leadership there that you know if things kind of start going south, they can pull these guys together and go like, okay, listen, this is the way things go in the NBA. You know, in order for us to get up here, you know, we need to do these things. And they have enough pelts on the wall. I mean, Van Vliet is, you know, has a ring. Jeff Green's been in the game for nearly 20 years. Uh, I mean, Dylan Brooks is definitely, he doesn't have a ring, but, you know, he, he's been, you know, pl- playoff tested, battle tested, facing off against LeBron in the playoffs. So, you know, these are guys that got pelts on the wall that can talk to these young kids and sit there and say, this is how it's done. Yeah. As they say about Dylan Brooks, he got that dog in him, man. That guy is, he is all muscle. He reminds me of if like Chuck Hayes could actually have an offensive skill set because Chuck Hayes was one of the last guys you'd want to meet like in a dark alley at night, right? Like if you had to square up against somebody, you did not want it to be Chuck Hayes. 
Dylan Brooks reminds me of that, except he's actually got a little offensive game to him. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you look at him, he's he's definitely built a little bit differently. Um, and, and, and he's, you know, he reminds me of actually as a player um, is Mario Ellie. I don't know if you uh, if you remember him too much, but uh, they they called him the junkyard dog. And you know, yeah, you remember the kiss of death there against Phoenix, but he was a guy that could defend twos, threes, and fours. He was only six foot five, but you know, he was built a little bit wider. Uh, obviously, could you know was maybe I don't know if the original three and D guy, but you know, probably as a bench piece, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, so you know. Definitely, I think Dylan Brooks is that kind of player. He, he's not he, he's not as tall as you think he would be, but you know you're not moving him. No, and, and you know, and I and I love the hustle, and in in it's spreading. And you you noted, um, you know, playing on a bum ankle. You know, Sangoon playing on a bum ankle. You know that dive that he made for that ball. I mean, that seemed to pick everybody up in that in that New Orleans game. Um, yeah, it, it absolutely did. It, 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 this team is fun. At the end of the day, Scott, like a young team like this, it's fun, and you hope that they grow together. And and you, as you said, get that experience, play play meaningful basketball together, because the trio of um, you know Jalen Green, Sangoon, Jabari Smith, those guys are young, and they got to get better together. And I think I think we have a great point guard to help them get there, but we still have Amen Thompson, who when he comes back from injury, you know. Who knows what we have there? But hopefully he he's taking note of what's going on right now, what winning basketball looks like, and, and how he can you know help contribute. Because right now it's going to be tough to get Aaron Holiday off the his fifteen minutes or effective fifteen minutes when he's out there right now. Before you know, I wanted to transition here, and before we get to everybody's favorite segment of the week, I think we really have to at least give a few minutes to what happened in College Station uh, this week. Um, and, and for those of y'all that, you know, are, are living under a rock or, you know, don't care about college football, uh, they defi- decided to fire Jimbo Fisher after beating Mississippi State, who also fired their coach. Boy, that was a rough Saturday. Um, not for Jimbo Fisher, though, because Jimbo Fisher has the golden parachute of all golden parachutes. As I was telling somebody else, I would like the interest for one year just the bank interest on that money for one year. I could retire, you know, easily. Do you think he ever coaches again? Because that money is like, in a lot of those deals, it's, you know, subtracted from what your new salary is or whatever it is. His is not. So, like, my question to you is, do you double dip? Do you go try and get a another job at maybe a mid-level school where, like, ah, fuck it, you know, I'll take $2 million a year for this one. Or do you just say, whatever, I've got my bag and I will play golf every day for the rest of my life and I will do it with the most expensive clubs that money can buy? I think if you really have an itch to scratch, I would just go find like a Catholic or parochial school. And like do go it. high school school? Yeah, like- yeah, and do it for like three grand, you know, or five, you know, where you don't have to teach. Like you're literally just coaching football. And uh, and so that that's what I would do if I were him. Seventy six million dollars, folks. Seventy six million. I was listening to you know um, I think you know Mad Dog uh, Radio on the way home uh, from picking my daughter's car up from another flat tire. 
Um, and they were they mentioned the top five or six uh, golden parachutes. It didn't even come uh, close to this if you add them up. Yeah, adding them up, like the top five or six almost reached 76 million. Five or six guys. I mean, this is just crazy. And and I don't and I think, you know, we've heard about some cultural things going on at A and M. And so I think, you know, maybe that was, you know, what this was all about. But and 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 I, I watch if you're a donor, if you're an A and M donor, or the next time that A and M calls you and you're an alumni and they call you and say, Hey, we need money. How in what world do you say okay? They just lit $76 million on fire. Well, they didn't how, lit. How, how can you ever go to anybody else again and say, please donate to the university? We need money. No shit you need money. You're paying $76 million to somebody and not fucking work there. Well, it's not lighting them on fire. That it's You, know, you paid them to go away. It's the biggest welfare check in, in the history of the yeah, United I'd States. Yeah, like I'd like to know how, how some of our... Uh, Texas Republicans feel about the welfare that this guy's going to be seeing. He's not working and he's getting paid. That doesn't sound okay to me. Well, you know what? What I, I think, what it comes down to is this. Um, and I, I went up to watch. You know, and I know you saw it. I went up to watch. You know, uh, TCU play UT, and we were talking about it. And, and this has been that a, game got close at the end. That actually ended yeah, up being a good game. And, and unfortunately, we went for it on you know inside the five yard line early in the third quarter and didn't get you know through three passes. Decided not to run the ball, but we had this conversation about the fact that you cannot assume this is not the old days of college football where you have the number one recruiting class and those guys stay three or four years. It's not those aren't those days anymore. We were talking about the fact that, you know, maybe, you know, 30 to 40% of your roster is going to turn over, you know, on a normal year. What happens when you're supposed to be the number one recruiting class in the country and you suck? How many of these guys are going to turn over? And I think what they're looking at is they're looking at the fact is that if we let him come back off of like a seven win or eight win season, he's going to lose a lot of those great athletes. The athletes in high school aren't going to come because they're going to look at A&M as just this, you know, suck. place. (coughs) So maybe they're thinking, Hey, if we bring in a stud coach, maybe some of these guys will stay. Maybe that's what they're thinking. I mean, and I don't know who who goes in there. I don't know who you get. I've heard, you know, Oregon's coach. I've heard people mention. Yeah, except he hopped on the mic and said, "I'm not leaving here. I've got everything I could ever want at this university. I'm not." He's losing. I'm not going to Texas A&M. Excellent. And like sometimes, you know, that's bullshit. But like this guy looked pretty like offended yeah. that he was even asked if he wanted to leave Oregon to go to A&M because in his mind, Oregon's already a top job. I've heard, you know, people mention Utah's coach. I've heard people mention Lane Kiffin. Um, I, and, and to me, there's no... Would fear. you want Lane Kiffin at this point? Um, I mean, I guess he's kind of rejuvenated his image a little bit. At Ole but Miss. he's an 8-4 and four guy. Yeah, I mean, with Ole Miss talent. I mean, I guess, you know, do you sit there and think, like, if he has A&M's, you know, top 10 recruiting class, does he win 10 games? I, I don't know. The problem is, is that you don't know. 
because every situation is different. It's a cult, you know, and, and they, when you mention culture in particular, it's, it, it's a, di- it's a huge difference. Jimbo Fisher was successful at Florida state. I don't know what happened, uh, but he never reached the heights that, that he reached at Florida state. Um, is that because Florida state's in the ACC and A&M's in the SEC? That's probably a big part of it, but you know, there's some other guys like Utah has been good the last couple of years, but does that guy come in? Do you hire maybe a guy that was at, you know, UTSA for instance, or maybe do you go after like maybe Tulane's coach or, you know, do what do you, you know, it's, it's hard, you know, you want to strike a balance between somebody who's like a good up and coming coach and somebody who's got enough pelts on the wall. I think you have to go up and comer because, like, let's be real. You cannot afford it for another big swing right now. Like, you're paying $76 million for a guy to not be there. You kind of have to bargain shop a little bit. Am I wrong? Like, you're looking for maybe something that is an up-and-comer you can get a little bit cheaper, or or maybe you talk a guy out of retirement. Like, I, I feel like you have to bargain shop here. You can't go spend $10 million a year anymore. You're down to two or three, maybe four. Could you imagine – you know, because this happens every year when students and parents see the tuition hike. Oh, my God. Because it happens every year. We we had this game at TCU where we would guess what the uh, the cost per hour was going to go up to. I actually won the pool one year. I, I think I guessed like $315 per hour, which now is ridiculously cheap. Um. But could you imagine, like, if costs went up five thousand dollars, all because they're paying a golden parachute to some guy? Whether they are or aren't, that's what the perception is going to be. You know, and and, and right, any any raise in tuition is now oh because you have to pay this guy, and that's what I'm saying with donations. That well is going to run dry when you're wasting money like this. You have to go bargain. There's no way you go and, and and. you know, try and lure away a big coach from university and, and overpaid it, right? You cannot go get Lincoln Riley from USC and try and recruit him to come to the SEC, right? That ain't happening. It ain't happening. You don't have the money for that anymore. There's no, and to me, Scott, there's no cachet to the A&M name as far as football goes. I mean, I guess outside of Johnny Manziel, who wasn't even that successful, he didn't win anything other than the Heisman. What have they done? What have they done in the in my lifetime? In my fucking lifetime, pardon my language, they did nothing in the Big Twelve. They've done next to nothing in the SEC. They had like one year where they're like the second best team because they beat Alabama. They're not relevant. Well, they yeah, you know, they've always been in that uncomfortable eight or nine win kind of category. Correct. They're and, and good, not great. RC Slocum was that way, you know. But they also it, they had some splashes. The only Texas team in the SEC, right? That got them a little bit of recruiting cachet to say, hey, you don't have to leave Texas and you can still be in the SEC. Well, guess what? You can't fucking say that anymore because I, UT is coming. I got a guy for you. Um, Hire Johnny Manziel no, to be no, your coach. No, no. Party's yeah, I got, on. I got a guy for you. Uh, he's a man. He's no longer forty. Oh, he's about I don't 50, think you'll ever so get him out of there. He's about fifty-five now, but you know that is my favorite. I don't all-time. think he'll ever leave there. He's my. That's my favorite all-time rant. 
you know, I love it. Time. The, you know, if you read the story behind it, it's actually pretty fucked up because he treated that quarterback like shit. Yeah. Like he, and then he, had, he ended up transferring to Texas, uh, Texas Southern in Houston and was the quarterback there his senior year. And like his family was like super embarrassed that that guy did that because like he just used him as an opportunity to get famous by oh, making yeah. a rant about a guy that like he threw under the bus. Yeah, that was yeah, that's true. All right, so I think we we've, we've pushed this back, but we have our favorite segment of the week. Um, did you want uh, who did you want to lead off this week? You go ahead. You go ahead. Um, I actually did a bit of a curveball here, and I'm going to go with the National Football League. So the National Football League has, during the year, because, you know, we're playing games in Germany for goodness knows what reason, but during the game, you know, during the year, we have, and I'm going to have to look this up, so we have about four primetime games uh, early in the year, uh, and, and whenever we have these European games. So I'm going to have to get my phone's going to have to operate a little bit faster, but I need to get the scores off here because I need to, you know, go over this. And I need to review with the, the listening audience here. This is what the NFL had going during primetime. So the first one on Thursday this last week, uh, that was, oh no, we'll let's go with the last game. Broncos-Bills, 24-22. The game was not that entertaining, folks. I mean, it looked entertaining, but um, my wife and I both fell asleep during the third quarter. Um, then on Sunday night, ooh, what a barn burner this one was. We had the Las Vegas Raiders. In an offensive bonanza, 16-12 to 12 over the New York Jets. Okay, awesome. I didn't watch a snap of that game, did you? Uh, I, I watched it, and I also fell asleep. Um, so, you know, th- thank you, NFL, that, that it gave me some a little bit of extra sleep time. Okay, so then we have uh, the early morning. Oh this, oh, this one's a game. In Germany, the Indianapolis Colts. You know, bumping up to the record to five and five with an office of explosion, scoring ten points against the Patriots, who muster six. And then on Thursday night, oh man, what a barn burner this one was! We have uh, the pick for the number one pick in the NFL draft, even though both teams already seemingly have their quarterback. The Chicago Bears beat. The Carolina Panthers, 16-13. Boy, that was some entertaining football. I mean, those those four games right there, I'm glad that those were the games that the NFL featured this week. You know, I almost heard, like, that maybe they had this thing where they could flex games. Did you Have you heard about this? Where they could actually change who the primetime games are. And I know that you can't do this the week of, and I, I know this. You know, this is not logical. You know, you can't sit there and say, yes, you know, the Colts and Patriots, we had scheduled you in Germany. By the way, you know, this week, nope, it's not you. Hey, this other team, you weren't planning on going to Germany, but you're going to Germany. Yeah, I, I agree. I get all this. This is fine. But on Thursday night, you know the Bears suck. You've known the Bears suck for 
at least five or six weeks. We know the Panthers suck. They've sucked all year. Why didn't we flex this game? You know, the Bengals and, and Texans, that was a highly entertaining game. And, and if you're a Bengals fan, you're like, oh, crap, you know, that game ended the way that it did. But you know what? You were entertained. You were on the edge of your seat. Okay, there are, you know, numerous other games. There were five games, counting Monday night, decided by a field goal. Of course, you know, Monday nights was one of them. But that's just because, you know, the team sucked and, you know, couldn't really do anything. Okay, four games on Sunday decided by a field goal. None of those are in prime time. Good job, NFL. You knew at least three of those games were going to be terrible. But what did we do? I don't know. Oh, we got to watch the Giants in prime time again, I guess, maybe. You know, this is what pisses me off the most, Scott. The Giants got five fucking primetime games. They're on every week in primetime. The Jets, five primetime games. The Packers, who also suck, five primetime games. The Raiders, who suck, five primetime games. The Vikings, who have Josh Dobbs as their fucking quarterback, five primetime games. The Bills, who are awful to watch. They're terrible, but they're on primetime every week because they get six. The Chargers, who suck every year. They put up points, but they suck. Six fucking primetime games. Cowboys, oh, God, got to suck on the Cowboys. You know what? Six fucking primetime games. Come on. The Bears got four primetime games. They're terrible. The Broncos, four primetime games. They're terrible. The Patriots, four primetime games. They're terrible. The Steelers, unwatchable on offense. Four fucking primetime games. What are we doing? Well, and, and what kills me is that I, I, there are some of those teams where I could sit there and go, like, at the beginning of the year, the Jets with Aaron Rodgers, okay. I agree. Uh, okay. But as soon as that Achilles went down, they needed to start flexing out of those games. Like, you, you got to. I mean, you know Zach Wilson's terrible. I mean, Zach Wilson is, is overthrowing wide-open guys 10 yards away by three yards. You know, and I'm not saying I could do any better, but I'm a 49-year-old man. I, I'm not going to do any better. But what, you know, why, are we, why are we watching this? And, and the whole thing is, is that you and I both know the Giants were going to suck. You and everybody in America knew the Bears were going to be bad. Every, the moment they signed Daniel Jones, I knew they were fucked. And and everybody, yeah, we were we were both laughing at that. And and we knew, you know, you mentioned some of those other teams. You know, Pittsburgh. They're not going to they're going to win football games, but they're not going to do it in an entertaining way. It's not primetime football. Yeah. It's not something people are going to tune in across the country to watch cuz it's boring as fuck watching Pickett do his and, thing. And I get it. I get there are some teams that we expected to be good and aren't good. But who, that's why the but that's who, why the flex exists. Who in America thought Green Bay Packers? There's a good football team. They got but, Jordan but Scott, Love. That's why you can flex. If you made a mistake because some team's not as good as you thought they'd be, fucking flex it. But who thought that? Yeah, Jordan Love. That's the guy. I mean, who thought that? Everybody I mean, in Green Bay. Well, sure. I mean, yeah, for about three minutes, everybody thought David Culley's a great hire. And then all of a sudden, they listened to him talk and went like, oh, shit. <laughs> but, I mean, come on. I mean, half of these teams, like the Chargers, okay, I could, I could, I could get behind one or two Chargers games. Justin Herbert's a, a very good quarterback. They, they run, uh, you know, high-octane offense. 
You know, they go for it on fourth down stupid amount of times. You know, I could see, you know, Staley's going to do something stupid. I could see, you know, hey, I'm going to be entertained. But, you know, some of these teams they're putting on there, why, why are we watching the Giants that many times? Even when they're good, they're not all that entertaining. You know, and that's, you know, the whole thing is if, if this is an entertainment product, you know, how many games, you know, and, and if you want us to talk about, let's, let's forget about Houston for a moment. How many games are the Lions on primetime? What, like two? Four? Okay, that makes sense. I'll go with that. I'll go with that. But, you know, how many, like the Jaguars, who were, you know, a good team with an up-and-coming quarterback? Three. So you have teams that have twice as many primetime games as the Jaguars, who made it to the second round of the playoffs. Dolphins might be the most exciting offense we've ever seen. They've got the same amount of primetime games as the Seahawks and the Saints. Three. Yeah, exactly. And The Rams get two. The, the you know, the Panthers, who suck, have two. It's just, it makes no sense. It makes absolutely no sense, Scott. All right. I I think I'm out of gas here on mine. So what do you got for us, Tim? I'm going to start with a countdown, Scott. 16 days, 5 hours, 12 minutes, and 39 seconds. That's how long till December 1st when I hope that Chris Presman finally has the balls to pull the trigger and fire Dana fucking the worst coach ever. Hogerson. He is destroying what should be a great year, should be a fun entry into the Big 12, but Dana Hogerson continues to just not even have this team ready to play. You you, ha- you play a great game against UT. You, you got screwed. Okay, whatever. Then you go up to Kansas State and lay the biggest, fattest fucking egg I've ever seen in my entire life. Then you come home. Then you get a win. We're thinking, hey, Okay, here we go. And then what happens? Another fucking egg where the team looked as they they looked as lost on offense as as if Dana literally woke up at two o'clock in the morning, put in a complete new playbook, didn't tell anybody, and then just passed it out in the locker room right before the game and said, Hey guys, here's the plays that we're running now. Because that's what it looked like. It was absolutely awful. They got the pants beat off them by a Cincinnati team that was two and seven. Two and fucking seven. Come into your house and beat your ass like that without a single Kelsey brother on the team anymore. There's no fucking excuse for what happened on Saturday. There's no excuse for what's happened all season. I didn't expect us to go out and to win the Big 12, but to not go to a bowl game? We're better than that. We've got great talent on this roster, and we we play call for shit. We play like shit. We don't have any fucking energy. No one comes out and wants to make a play and get anything going. You've got an athletic quarterback who looks like he's fucking Helen Keller in the goddamn pocket. What the fuck is happening out here? This guy should have been fired already. The only thing I can think of is that you don't have to pay as much money by like a minuscule amount at December 1st. So you know what, Scott? 16 days. Five hours, ten minutes, and twenty-eight seconds till December first. Man, Tim, bringing the bringing the heat on that one. I, you know, at the end, at the beginning of the year, if you had told me that both of our schools would not be in a bowl game, I, I would have it would have been crazy to me. But I have a, I have a feeling. So, OK State is a minus seven favorite against UH. 
I want to lay like every fucking dollar I have on OK State to win by much more than seven points. I don't know. Did you see what happened to them this last week? I mean, they lost forty-five to three to That's Central what I'm Florida. Yeah, but, but uh, UH will show up unprepared and unmotivated, and like the bus will probably get lost on the way to the stadium, so guys won't have time to stretch, and then somebody will tear something. I guarantee you. I'll tell it you. reminds me. It reminds me real quick when I was in high school, my junior year. Uh, we had a coach come in who had been in retirement because freshman sophomore year we had Jason Jessick. He decides to go to you know the same school his wife's teaching at. So Tommy Tucker comes in to be our golf coach. Well, Tommy Tucker cared about trying to get on the senior PGA Tour. He didn't give a shit about actually coaching golf. He wanted the free range balls that came with being a high school golf coach. So you know what? First tournament, time to leave. What did he forget to order? A bus for us to get there. One of the parents had to loan this guy a fucking Chevy Tahoe for us to all pile in and to drive an hour and a half to the woodlands where we showed up six minutes before our tea time and then had to literally race to hit like two pots and run. And he wanted to know why we started off so sluggish. That's that's what's that's what Dana fucking Holgerson is. He is Tommy Tucker. Man. Tim, bringing the bringing the sauce tonight. I'll tell you what. Uh, I couldn't believe I, this mom said, take my car, Scott. That literally yeah, the, happened. She said, here, my husband will come pick me up. Take my car. Well, you know what kills me is I. this is where I think U of H is at. You cannot hire any more coaches with girls' names. That that That's a rule. No Kim Helton. No Dana Holgerson. You know, you, you're going to have to, you, you're going to have to, you know, bring in somebody, you know, and, but in all seriousness, you know, Cincinnati, obviously, you know, Central Florida, I think all the teams that came into the Big 12 struggled this year. And, 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 and uh, I suppose for good reason, you know, if you look at TCU and, and, and I look at my team, what I, you know, what you see is during the regular season last year, we won five games by one score. Some of those we pulled out of our ever-living butt, like our game, uh, win against Baylor. And so what happens this year is we've lost four games by one score. And so those, you know, those games we were winning, we're not winning now. And, you know, some of that is, you know, talent that's missing. Some of that is uh, Kendall Bryles, you know, probably not being a really good defense offensive coordinator. Um, and then, you know, of course, we're now starting a freshman quarterback. And, you know, he's, you know, making key mistakes at, at key moments. But uh, I feel for you, Tim. I, I've been there. I've been there when your team is just not a good team. And you were thinking they were going to be good and not good. I and, and I think U of H now being in the Big 12, I mean, you're one of the four biggest conferences in the country. And really, I would say that one of the top three conferences. I'd say, you know, probably SEC, Big 10, and then – Big 12, uh, I don't think ACC is, you know, on the level of the Big 12. So you should be able to get, you know, a pretty good coach in there. Um, Absolutely. and But you know what? There should be Big 12 effort. That's what pisses me off is you're in an elite conference and you just – and you don't play like you give a fuck. To go up to Kansas State and to get shut out like 42 to nothing, what the hell? It was a little chilly out. Big fucking deal. Big fucking deal. You play football. You play to win the game. We should be able to get a big name. You're right. 
I don't know if it'll happen. We'll see. Because we're going to have to pay Dana like 15 million bucks over the next few years. Ain't 76. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> that's, why, that's why I feel like, hey, you know what? Till, Tillman's got money. Tillman To Tillman 15, he shits $15 million without even realizing it came out. You know, that's just that's just like ten orders of shitty shrimp at the at the aquarium. <laughs> my shitty shrimp, my shitty beef, my shitty shrimp, and my shitty chicken, and my shitty beef. That's one of the best South Park episodes of all time. When you realize that 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 the Asian guy actually has multiple personality disorder, and he's just a white guy who's been putting on that impression the whole time. Well, did you ever see the ones where he was advertising like a? You know, was it South Soto? Uh, South, uh, yeah, South. That's where, they, that's where they gentrify the whole yeah. area. Like, the Kenny's house is still shitty, and then yeah. everything else gets like, <laughs> built up around it. Oh man! But um, or the one where they do the Chinese Japanese Unity Day parade or whatever. Oh it is. yes, and he had the fight with the. Uh, oh yes, yes, classic. All right, yeah. All right, Tim. So uh, next week. Uh, we hope we'll be with you. Uh, it'll be. Uh, we should be able to do a Tuesday show before be, uh, yeah. before the festivities. I will, I will be off of work, so you know it'll be you know, nice. Hopefully, I can get out and play at least once. You know, on, on the golf course. You know, um, I'm playing. I'm playing Black Friday at uh, seven forty, and then uh, I'm playing this Sunday at seven forty. Trying to you know, be a respectful husband, get out there early, get back, be helpful around the house. Yeah, so I'm, I'm trying to get out there at least once. Uh, Somewhere. I think you should go for twice. I think you yeah. should shoot for like a Tuesday, Friday. Yeah, we could we could do that. We could we'd give that a shot. All right. So where can the good folks find you? Well, Scott, they can find me on Twitter, Tim underscore Costello 10. We keep saying for now, you actually pulled the trigger on it. I have not yet, but um, you can find me there. You can find the show at the Snaphook podcast. Um, you could also feel free to like, subscribe, whatever on, on whatever um, feed that you listen to us on reviews are much appreciated. Five stars would be appreciated as well. Yeah. But as Tim mentioned, um, I pulled the trigger and deactivated my Twitter account. Um, I, we, you know, we were mentioning South park and I, there's an episode of South park where they're like, people don't just leave Facebook without doing a, a post on why they're leaving Facebook when the police are looking for Cartman. Cause they think he died. Because he's not on Facebook anymore, and that was definitely the vibe I got on your Substack post on why I'm leaving Twitter was the long post on why I'm leaving Twitter as you leave Twitter. Yeah, I, I felt like you know I needed to do it because I felt like I needed to articulate I think what a, like a lot of people are feeling, um, and and basically I I did my rant on this last week, so I'm not going to re, re, re litigate that, but yeah, I pulled the trigger. So basically, it just comes down to the fact is that. If it causes me two or three minutes of anger a day, that's two or three minutes too much. And and so I'm on threads, um, on Facebook, I'm on you know Substack, I'm with uh, still with Battle Red Blog, so plenty of places to find me. So you know don't don't shed a tear. Don't shed a tear, Scott Barzilla, still here. But that's all we've got for you here this week. Be sure to. Um, Come in next week, Scott and I. Scott's been running a lot of numbers, doing a lot of crunching on on some uh, historical baseball data. So hopefully next week um, we'll get a chance to, as this is kind of the Astros' dead dead part of the offseason, we'll get a chance to dive in a little bit uh, into maybe some guys that should be in the Hall of Fame, should not be, that are, that shouldn't, you know, things along that nature. So 
Scott's got some good numbers to look into. It'll be a great deep dive uh, into some baseball history for those of you who enjoy that sort of thing. But we'll also get a check-in on Scott's golf game. As, as he said, he's hoping to get out there. So we always love to know how Scott's swinging it when he's getting a chance to play. That's all we got for you this week. We appreciate everybody who joined us, made us a part of your week, and we will see you next week on the Snap Hook. Thank you for tuning in to the Snap Hook and making Scott and I a part of your week. I wanted to recognize that our intro song is called Energetic Indie Rock by Alex Grohl, and this outro music is Good Vibe by Twisterium. We appreciate everyone who tunes in each and every week and is part of the Snaphook movement. We look forward to seeing you next week on the Snaphook.